David, hello. Hello, and uh, in person, <laughs> offline. Here we are. <laughs> Instead of being on a, an online call, we are in fact mm -hmm. in the same place. But we're not in Taiwan where you live, we're not in Beijing where I live. We are actually here in Washington, D.C. You know, so often on Drum Tower we talk about this triangular relationship between China, Taiwan, and the U.S. For the first time, we're recording an episode together in person, and we're doing it from that third part of the triangle. And we could have gone to Congress, or we could have you know, hung around a presidential debate spin room. But we want to hear people who are still curious about the future of the relationship, who may even end up working professionally in some way on the U.S.-China relationship. So we've come to a university. Yeah, we are at Georgetown. We are actually standing on a lawn just inside the main gate of the university. There's a lot of big shady trees around us and students sitting in rocking chairs. There's one student with a hammock tied up. It's very much a, an idyllic campus vibe. And authentically, we are under the flight path for Reagan Airport. So today, we are going to meet a dozen grad students who are currently studying the U.S.-China relationship. And they're from a really interesting mix. There's some Americans, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, and we've seen their CVs, and I have to say they are dauntingly impressive. So we're excited to hear from them how they see the future of this relationship. Because it's always a cliche to say, you know, oh, let's go and talk to some young people about the future. But actually, this relationship is changing really fast. No one knows where this is going, but they are going to be dealing with this in some way in their lives or their professional lives. They've been brought together tonight by one of their teachers, Evan Medeiros. I used to talk to him when he was in the Obama administration. He spent many, many hours with Xi Jinping in summits and meetings. He's now a professor here at Georgetown. He teaches Asia studies. So this week, we're asking, what is this younger generation thinking about the future of the U.S.-China relationship? I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here in D.C. with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist Beijing Bureau Chief. So here from under this beautiful tree, this is Drum Tower. From The Economist. Evan, welcome to Drum Tower, and thank you so much for having us here at Georgetown. Thanks, Alice. Great to be here. And hello to all of our students. You can say hello. hello. <laughs> you can respond. So we'll be hearing more from you guys in just a moment. But first, before we get talking about the future of the U.S.-China relationship, we need to understand a bit about its past. So, Evan, we've known each other for over 20 years, but I used to come and talk to you when I was a journalist based here in Washington. I remember you had a very cool office. Yes, I had a very big office. Did you have a cannon in your office? Am I imagining that? That's classified. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you were running Asia policy day to day for the National Security Council in the, in the Obama administration. And, you know, that's not that long ago in years, but it's like another world in U.S.-China relations. It is. Relations. Another world. If someone had come to you at that point and asked you to sum up the U.S.-China relationship in one word or one phrase, what would you have said back then? And what would you say today? So back then, it was this complicated mix of competition and cooperation. Mm -hmm. 
Now we're in a different world, right? It's long-term structural strategic competition where our interests diverge more than they converge. And can we dig into this question? How much of foreign policy can be explained by kind of structural forces, you know, national strength and economic growth? And how much is like the leader at the top table? I've thought about this question a lot. I'm probably a little counter consensus on it. I do believe that Xi Jinping really has had a unique and probably outsized influence on this transition to long-term strategic competition. When Xi Jinping came to power, I think the Chinese were hoping that they would get sort of a spicy, more competent version of Hu Jintao, a party man, but somebody that would control special interests better and be more active internationally. Hu Jintao was already moving there. I don't think most of the party that chose Xi Jinping expected that he would be as scorched earth in terms of anti-corruption, both in the military and in the civilian sector. I remember when the Chinese deployed the air defense identification zone over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands in the fall of 2013. I don't think the foreign ministry even knew. The PLA said, let's do it. He said, let's do it, right? That was the beginning. There is an active debate about whether the Obama administration was slow to see the dangers of those reclaimed reefs. And and maybe also was the US military slow to see the dangers of those reclaimed reefs. And then, you know, when the US military got into a panic, did the NSC block some of the kind of freedom of navigation operations that maybe the US Navy wanted to sail. Can I just add, we've done a drum tower series on China and Japan before. And when I was in Tokyo with my colleague there, we spoke to some former Japanese officials. Uh And one thing we heard quite a lot was they felt like Japan was kind of raising the alarm about China, particularly on maritime security earlier, and that the US was a little bit slow to come around or to realize that this wasn't just a Japan-China thing, like this is really serious. So you guys are really asking the hard questions now. (laughs) So it's interesting you say that about Japan, because when the Japanese government in the summer of 2012 nationalized the Senkakus and it created a real crisis, the U.S. worked in lockstep with Japan to deter Chinese provocations. And then, of course, when Obama visited Japan in 2014, we sort of pulled out all the stops to signal that publicly – And I believe Obama was the first president to say in Japan that the islands were covered under the Mutual Defense Treaty. So, I mean, I think the fact that the Chinese were not able to undermine Japan's administration of the islands and weren't able to push the boundaries and use the nationalization move in 2012, I think is actual indication that the alliance has been working quite well. The Chinese were very, very skillful in the way they conducted land reclamation that made it hard to understand exactly what was going on. Because you got to remember, nobody had ever seen this before. It's not like there was a pattern, a fact pattern, and we could recognize the fact pattern and say, aha, we know what they're doing. They're building seven artificial islands, three of which will be quasi-military bases, right? What I can tell you did not happen is nobody said, oh, we know what the Chinese are doing, uh, but it's not a big deal because we want to cooperate on climate change. There was no kind of decision like that. So in retrospect, sure, I wish we had moved faster because the Chinese were able to accomplish something that changed the strategic situation in the South China Sea. Do you think the Chinese uh, read President Obama as weak? No, I don't think they read President Obama as weak. 
So why did they take the risks they took? I mean, I think generally Chinese statecraft is about constantly exploring and pushing the boundaries. It's about trying to see what they can get away with. And I think that the PLA had really been pushing for more action in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea. And the Chinese thought, okay, in the South China Sea, we can do this quickly and, you know, we can make enough progress before the Obama administration and U.S. allies in Asia really have time to push back. The other part of it that's important to keep in mind is we live in a world today, especially after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where there's an enormous degree of solidarity and agreement about the nature of the China challenge among the United States, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and now newly Europe, right? And so the ability to push back and to use the tools of international coordination for pushback are a lot greater. It wasn't like that in the Obama administration. So you're somebody who got to work on the front line of shaping the U.S.-China relationship. And now you're here at Georgetown. You're teaching students who, who may have a part to play in that in the future. Are there differences you already see in the students and the next generation from your engagement with them? Well, I mean, most basically, the future generation of scholars and policymakers most of them just have a lot more direct experience of each other. So we're very excited to have a group of your students here, just as a kind of first marker of where we stand with this room of students. Can we just ask you to tell us whether you are basically optimistic or pessimistic about the future of US-China relations? So I'm going to ask if you are optimistic that things could get better, could you raise your hand? I think we have one, one? two. Wait, two? So we have two <laughs> hands raised. And so if you're pessimistic, okay, oh, that wow. is pretty much everyone <laughs> else. And so some, not, wow. some not, not raising their hands either way, which is... I would say optimistic. Optimistic. Okay, oh, so we have a right, third optimistic. Right. So we have three out of 11 for optimism. So eight for pessimism about the future of the relationship. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so I thought we could just start off by getting to know some of you. And we wanted to just ask, why are you studying U.S.-China relations? Is it because of your personal connections to it? Or is it for some other reason? What do you plan to do with your studies? Hi, my name is Laura Edwards. And I spent most of my childhood living in China. My family moved there when I was six years old. And I stayed through my first year of college. So for me, I was always interested in everything China, you know, Chinese history, politics. And I think for me, U.S.-China politics now has become this very contentious issue. But for me personally, it's very connected to sort of these early childhood experiences that I had growing up there, you know, having Chinese friends going over to their houses during Chinese New Year and making dumplings. I do feel quite pessimistic about the future. It seems like we're in a really tough place where I don't see either side willing to make room in ways that would allow the relationship to improve in a significant way. So that's why I feel a bit negative in the relationship, even though I will likely be building my career around U.S.-China policy. Hi, my name is Meng Jian. I'm from China. I was studying literature. And the reason that I wanted to study U.S.-China relation is because one novel that I read, it is a classical Chinese novel. I was reading the first version of English translation of it, The Journey to the West, translated by Timothy Richard. But the novel was originally a mix of 
Buddhist and Taoist culture. But Thomas Richards' translation completely transformed it into, you know, like a Christianity teaching. <laughs> and yeah, that really surprised me. And that gave me the feeling that at least culturally, the misperception between U.S. and China must be really, you know, severe and deep. And after I come here, I started to feel like not only culturally, but probably in all areas, the misperception and distrust and the reinterpretation of China's intentions are sometimes misperceived. A lot of you guys are cross-cultural, like you've grown up or lived between the U.S. and China or Taiwan or other parts of Asia. And I wanted to know kind of what do you think is the biggest perception gap between the two sides? Hello, my name is Tristan Murdoch, and I first went to China in 2016 with the National Security Language Initiatives for Youth while I was in high school. I'm also from Wyoming, which is extremely conservative. And I remember most of what I knew about China was pretty negative. And I remember talking to my local coordinator who was helping me get all my documents together, and he just couldn't believe it. He said, you're going to communist China, communist China, wow, communist China. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh boy, what have I signed up for? And I went and I stayed with a host family for 10 months. I had a really, really positive experience while I was there. I learned to speak Chinese as well as, you know, you can in 10 months. And maybe that's a product of where I grew up, but there was just a big chasm of misunderstanding between how Americans thought of China and how Chinese people think of Americans as sort of the other. Hi, my name's Erlen. I'm from Beijing, born and raised. I did IR in undergrad in California, and we talked a lot about Belt and Road Initiative and most of the materials we covered were basically saying that how it is economic coercion on the negative side. But from like friends and family or just people back home, they generally view that as something to be proud of, to be able to give back to the international community. I am generally really optimistic about the future of U.S.-China relations, especially from my own perspective as a master's student, I think our program created a really safe space to have conversations on potentially sensitive issues that would otherwise be contentious. You mentioned something that I kind of wanted to expand as a question to everyone else. How easy is it for you guys to talk to each other about U.S.-China relations? Like, is there going to be a war over Taiwan? Do you feel that you're able to have open conversations about that with each other? Hi, my name is Claire Chow, and I'm from Taiwan. I also came from a Taiwanese military family. My dad is still in the military. And so that really affects how I perceive cultural relations. In college, for example, like I was in a U.S.-China relations course, and it was mostly Chinese international students where they would be very dismissive about like Taiwan and any view of U.S. for Taiwan. And I think that affected a lot on my like college experience. And that's why I ended up like graduating a year and a half early because I didn't really like the academic environment there. And so I think it largely depends. And I think Georgetown does have a really safe space for that. But that would, I guess, largely depend on the school and whether you have a healthy environment within classrooms. 
It also depends on you know what courses are you in and what academic environment that course provides you with. For example, if you're in a course where the tone is already settled, like the professor is really prone that China is seeking to replace the United States as the global hegemon, it would be really hard to you know defend that or to have a debate on whether China's intention is that. Can I ask a follow up to that? So. It's really striking how, if you listen to some American politicians when they talk about Chinese students studying in America, they kind of set conditions. What would be a good Chinese student? So, a good、mm. Chinese student <laughs> is one who's not kind of an agent for the Communist Party. That they're kind of open to Western ideas. You know, you are welcome if you kind of meet these conditions. Flip it round to listening to Chinese government officials, and to be a good Chinese student. Overseas, make sure you kind of love the motherland, uphold Chinese values. Do you feel a pressure as a Chinese student studying in America to be either an American leader's view of what's a good Chinese student or a Chinese official's view of what's a good Chinese student? Is there some extra burden placed on you? No, that's not a burden on me because <laughs> <laughs> because I don't take those requirement into me. I think to do good academic studies is to like. Deprive myself of my original biases to, you know, be able to look into those issues through various people's perspectives. Having been raised in China for like twenty years, and having a family where most of the culture and educations, it's really hard for me to just abandon all of that. Certainly, I have personal standings on a lot of issues, but. I don't think that I should bring them into a lot of those academic studies, or to you know become somebody's good student. I want to just be comfortable on myself, and I think doing that would automatically, you know, most times fulfill what my family would expect of me, or what the U.S.'s academic environment want of me as a scholar or student. Can I just just to ask anyone from China here? I guess, and this is a hard question. You don't have to answer it if it's not comfortable. But I remember talking to a professor from a different university, who said that his grad students from the mainland would often say to him in private, "Can you make sure that I am not in a class with any other mainland student? Because if there are other mainland students, I'm frightened they're going to report me to the Chinese embassy, and I'll be in trouble, and the police will visit my parents back home." So. Does that resonate with any of you here? That kind of sense of being scrutinized and judged. I think it's not in a being surveillanced sense. When I first got to America to study IR in my undergrad college, and China got mentioned a lot in just any of my classes,、mm-hmm. and at first it can be a little bit triggering because、mm-hmm. I somehow felt like when people criticized China, they were coming at me.、Mm-hmm. But after a while. Having like detaching myself from the factual issues that we're talking about makes it much easier for me as a PRC citizen to have academic conversations, fact-based, without personal emotions or nationalism attached.、Mm. So that's what I'm striving for, and I would like to keep it that way. So I try not to think of myself as being surveillanced or as speaking for certain countries, really. In that sense, thank you, Alan. You know, going back to some of the things that you've been talking about already about the power and the value of people-to-people relationships, the power of these kind of exchanges. 
Could we fix the whole US-China relationship if we had like millions of students in China and America in both directions? Or are the problems just larger? Is it kind of vital and necessary, but not enough? I mean, the broader structural forces are like a tidal wave that's growing in this relationship, right? We compete on security issues, economic issues, technology issues, and ideas of domestic and global governance, right? The sources of ballast in the relationship, like people-to-people ties, are very minimal. They're grains of sand. Sorry, I just totally mixed metaphors. <laughs> no, grains of sand in a tidal wave. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, I guess. You don't get yeah, far yeah, with yeah. a grain of sand in a tidal wave. Yeah, I guess they're, they're grains of sand that get washed away by the tidal wave, right? Mm. And in both countries, you have these changing domestic political forces that are shrinking space for dialogue, cooperation, you know, a stable relationship, and increases the impulse toward seeing the other as a long-term adversary and all the competitive forces, right? And I think we're going to see this very likely play out in the American election next year. Evan, thank you. I'm Howard. I'm from the Republic of China, Taiwan. I'm going to offer an even more pessimistic view on U.S.-China relations, even with student-to-student exchange. To what extent do we need U.S. decision makers to be mainland educated and mainland decision makers to be American educated. We already have that. In the 19th Politburo, we already have Wang Huning, Liu He, Yang Jiechi, and Chen Xi being foreign educated in the United Kingdom, Europe, and also in the United States. So probably unless we have two whole sets of government, one on the Washington side, one on the Beijing side, one being all mainland educated Americans and one being all America educated mainlanders, that we will have enough of a counter structure to counter the ongoing structure that we are experiencing right now. I think that one of the biggest impediments to people-to-people exchanges is actually, in my experience, it's never been easier to travel abroad and not experience a different culture or to not learn a language. With how globalized everything is, it could have been so easy for me to go to China, in NYU Shanghai, only speak with my American friends, only go out with them, only interact with them. And very, very rarely did I need to do anything outside of that bubble. And I feel like the only way to really bridge that is to want to do that. So tell us what your sense is of your generation in your home country whether you're Chinese or American or from somewhere else, because there are a lot of very loud nationalist voices on the Chinese side. America also feels like a... Dystopia, but but at the same time, you also have Chinese youth wanting to lie flat, and then you have quiet quitting <laughs> on the U.S. side. So how would you describe the vibe of your generation in your country? Basically, do younger people also have an appetite for that kind of competition, or do you just need to wait for this older generation to age out and then and then when when your generation takes over like we'll all be able to get along so i think the vibe that i'm getting especially from the taiwan perspective i think a lot of my friends they're particularly in the conscription system and how they view the conscription system i think they don't like view military it as, service right yes they don't view it as seriously and they try to just get out of it whether it's, you know, being overweight, being underweight, injuring themselves. You can <laughs> we need these 
Taiwanese young people to actually be more proactive in Taiwan's defense in order to actually kind of deter China. Um, hi, Robin. I'm from North Carolina, and I am a first-generation Chinese-American. I have a hard time generalizing American youth, U.S. youth, like Chinese youth, like all youth are chronically online. <laughs> I'm also you know, guilty of that. Something that's really popular on TikTok, um, as well as YouTube, is like Li Zixi and you know, those cottagecore YouTubers and TikTokers in China. It's just set to Chinese music, and it's a lot of very romantically done videos of people living their lives in the countryside. It's just, like, very aesthetically pleasing and beautiful and not overtly political. And I think that kind of feeds into the broader wave of just content that is aesthetically pleasing and harkens back to a rural way of life. She's like a dreamy village girl who's just yeah. chopping eggplants and cooking them for her grandma. <laughs> like It's very relaxing to watch. And I think it's kind of an openness to what is going on in China and not even on a political level like a lot of my peers, especially back in North Carolina, aren't focusing on international relations. I think the second part is just speaking to my own Chinese-American identity. I think I've been very lucky that the U.S. is so culturally diverse and that, not to be like super optimistic, but it's this kind of cultural diversity and contact that I think makes general American youth, which is one of the most diverse generations in the United States in a long time, I think ever, makes it so that the temperature doesn't have to be as hot as Washington or policymakers might think it should be. I'm on Chinese social medias probably too much. But um, <laughs> you see in the comment section, there's obviously like the cell phone home being very nationalistic, trying to stroke nationalism and being quite extreme. But you also see pushbacks in these comment sections where people with actual overseas experience share their own perspective and not just like simply concurring with these nationalistic sentiments. Maybe it's nice to have respect and interest in each other's cultural differences. But we're in a competition now because China versus America is two models and each is fairly confident that their model is kind of better. Do you think that framing of a great power competition of two models and one is going to kind of win out because they are starkly incompatible visions of how to run the world, does that framing also make sense to you and your generation or your cultural diversity is also kind of openness to maybe there's good things about the other side's political model and it doesn't have to be that kind of a zero-sum competition. Hi, I'm Bernice. Um, I am a Chinese-American and I hope to one day uh, work on China policy in the U.S. government. For me personally, I've seen both sides. I understand that there's so much hardened mistrust and misperceptions there, but at the end of the day, I think the U.S. needs to work with China on certain issues, and I think we also need to compete with China on certain issues. I think that when we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, the U.S. and China could have done a lot better working together. And there's also a host of other issues like climate change that we need to work together. So I don't have the right answer for it right now, but I think that we should add nuance to this framing of great power competition. We'll be back in a moment to hear what this younger generation thinks about Taiwan's future. But first... We wanted to remind listeners that later this month, we will be introducing our new podcast subscription. So if you want to enjoy listening to every episode of Drum Tower, our other weekly shows, and all the new exciting series we're making, you'll need to sign up for Economist Podcast Plus. 
Right now, a subscription is $24.50 for the whole year, or just $2 or pounds or euros a month. And to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus, just click on the link in the show notes. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, thank you. You'll have full access to all of our shows as part of your subscription. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We actually wanted to ask you guys for your views on Taiwan. And Taiwan is not just a symbol, of course, but it's also it's the potential flashpoint, right, for a U.S.-China conflict. What would your recommendations be, actually, I don't know, for the U.S. government, for China, for Taiwan, on how to prevent conflict and preserve Taiwan's democratic system at the same time? You know, what do you think should be done? And I guess in particular, if there's anything different from what's being done right now, it's a big question. I'm sure Howard has an answer. (laughs) I worked in Taipei for KMT's Department of International Affairs during 2019, 2020, a little bit of 2021. So I think, first of all, we have to outlive Xi Jinping. He's assertive, he's aggressive, he's ambitious. We know that. And of course, we cannot make the assumption that the successor of Xi Jinping will be a lot better than Xi Jinping. But we need to outlive Xi Jinping for an opportunity for change. And in order to outlive Xi Jinping, we first need to stack up our defenses. That's the most important thing. We need to make sure that whenever the PLA is considering invading Taiwan, it is calculating their costs and benefits of a Taiwan invasion. They are deterred by the cost of it. But second, We have to do what the American government is doing right now. We need to ensure that there is an effective communication channel between Taipei and Beijing. Well, probably also, you know, Washington, Beijing, that's very important. Manage risk and to respond to miscommunication and incidents. If we can get, of course, not millions, but like platoon level of ROC servicemen to the United States for education and vice versa. And we can create a concrete American military culture within a class of ROC military. We can change things. We can boost up our defense. We can increase our interoperability. And I think that's the way forward. I think that it's not helpful when President Biden has made repeated statements saying that the U.S. will certainly come to the defense of Taiwan, that we will send boots on the ground. So I think the U.S. should go back to our One China policy. I've been doing a bunch of interviews this week with senior Biden administration officials, with members of Congress, with senators. One of the things that someone said in an interview in the administration was that they have members of Congress saying to them, help me explain to my voters why Taiwan matters, because it's a very hard kind of argument to make. 
in America among your own kind of friends and contemporaries and family and schoolmates? Do you think there is a sort of an understanding that America might have to fight for Taiwan or that the US-China relationship really could be, you know, a cold war, even a hot war? How broadly is that shared? Wars frequently are won with hearts and minds. The war on terror began with a lot of enthusiasm, but later was seen as a policy disaster because, in part, U.S. lost confidence in policymakers as well as policymakers' own blunders. A big reason why the U.S. is supporting Ukraine in the conflict with Russia is because of the implications that Russia's conquest of Ukraine, whether in whole or in part, would have on the rules-based international order are profound. Certainly, the context is different in Taiwan. But as similarly in Taiwan, if there was a cross-strait conflict, Taiwan representing one of Asia's most robust democracies, that conflict would be a threat to democratic values in the Asia-Pacific writ large. And I think that's something that still resonates with the American people. So a kind of values-based argument needs to be made with the American public. Beyond strategy, that kind of hearts and minds argument is what can really resonate with people who aren't necessarily in D.C., we're discussing the possibility there could be a war between the US and China over Taiwan. Something must come up in your studies. How does that work for you as a Chinese mainland student? I understand the strategic importance of the Taiwan Strait, but personally, I see Taiwanese people as brethren. And I feel like what I'm concerned for the most part is as a Chinese citizen, if there were to be an international war, or like potentially World War III, how that would translate for me personally and for the Chinese people on an individual level. Because I feel like a lot of the times we forget that we're talking about actual living people instead of just a war game simulation. As we've seen with the Ukraine-Russian war, the cost of living, shooting sky high, and if we have another war in the Taiwan Strait, and how would that look like for just average people? Do you think there's anything like Chinese people could do to prevent a war? The Chinese people yeah. could do? Yeah, like ordinary people. Like, what do you mean ordinary people? Prevent? Kind of like, you know how, I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine, right? And I guess if there was a war, we talk a lot about the scenario where China would be the aggressor invading Taiwan. Do you feel like ordinary Chinese people have any say in whether something like that happens, or is it like that would be something totally out of most people's control? The government makes that decision, and Chinese people will just try to survive. I feel like most governmental behaviors are out of the control of the ordinary people. Like, sure, people are represented, but I wouldn't say anyone as a ordinary individual can inflict great influence on any of the broader structural behaviors. So Evan, I remember coming to see you when you were in government, and I asked... I actually let you in the White House, David. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> hey, hey you, you asked me if the Chinese thought Obama was weak, so... <laughs> I didn't ask you if you thought he was weak. I didn't say I thought he was weak, but um, yeah. That's a fair question. It's a fair question. So I remember coming to see you when you were still in government, and I asked you, how does this end well? What is the best-case scenario for U.S.-China relations? What did I say back then? It was basically a variation on they stumble, that they make a bunch of policy mistakes and they end up being less assertive and a somewhat more kind of 
self-reflective. China proved somewhat more amenable to an America that had not declined as China seemed to expect. And I have to say that was basically a remarkable consensus among the people I asked that question of in DC at that time. It was the consensus argument. You're now several years out of government, several years into being full-time professor here at Georgetown. And you have not just the passage of time, but also contact with these amazingly thoughtful, reflective young people. Has your thinking changed? How does this end well? My answer to the question has evolved, largely because the world has changed, right? And so while I continue to believe that they stumble, some combination of the economy slowing down more than they expected, challenges achieving technological innovation, continued constraints on politics. But the other part of the equation that events in the last several years have sensitized me to are not just domestic constraints, but external restraints. There's a lot more coordination on China between the U.S. and Europe, right? NATO has a new mission. U.S. allies and partners in Asia, Japan, Korea, and Australia in particular, are much more focused on the China challenge and willing to work with each other, with the United States. I think the biggest strategic cost to China of its alignment with Russia is the Russian invasion of Ukraine effectively globalized the Taiwan issue. Everybody's asking, is Taiwan next? But of course, final point is... Then there's this whole group of middle powers. You know, people talk about the global south. And where do they sit in this emerging redistribution of power? And that remains an open question. But I do think the external restraints piece is going to be important and a central part of the story of whether or not China is going to be able to achieve all of its ambitions. And to bring that back to this room of really impressive young people who've been incredibly kind of candid with us, Part of what you're talking about is a kind of just a greater global clarity about what is going on. Awareness and clarity. And do you see that awareness and clarity reflected in the students that you're teaching? Do you feel that this is a generation that are actually passionate about international communication and people-to-people exchanges, but not in any way kind of naive about the world we live in? Undoubtedly. Thank you so much, Evan, and thank you so much to all the students. We loved hearing from all of you. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. So, David, the students have left, and it was a great evening. What did you think of the conversation? I mean, I guess on balance, to me, it was pretty sobering. I mean, these dozen kids, they are like bridge builders, right? They are as committed to mutual understanding between China and America as you get. But even they were really clear that they're just larger forces at work. Mm. Yeah, I have to say, I was surprised at how honest and vulnerable the students were willing to be at some points, talking about very political, sensitive subjects. But yeah, as you say, they were quite realistic about how they're just individuals and they may not be able to change the direction that things are going. At the same time, I think what stuck with me was one thing one of the students said about outliving Xi Jinping and this idea that this generation is going to outlive the people in charge right now and they will have a chance to take the relationship in a different direction. Thank you to Evan Medeiros, his students, and Georgetown University for welcoming us onto their campus. And thank you for listening to Drum Tower. 
especially seven-year-old James, who lives in Toronto, and emailed us to say he listens on the way to ice hockey practice. Hi, James. And if you want to send us a note, our email address is drum at economist.com. And we've had lots of emails about the new subscription service that we're introducing later this month. And we're thrilled that so many of you told us you want to carry on listening to Drum Tower and have been signing up. It really means a lot. And if you're still undecided or you haven't taken out a subscription yet with Economist Podcast Plus, then right now you can take advantage of that special half price offer for our listeners. $24.50 for the whole year. So that's just $2 or pounds or euros a month. And for that, you get all our regular shows and new shows we've got on the way. One coming up soon is called Boss Class, which will teach you how to be a better manager. Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever app you use to listen right now, whether that's Apple, Spotify, The Economist's own app, or any other. If you're an Economist subscriber already, thank you. You will have full access as part of your subscription. And to sign up for that special podcast offer right now, you can click on the link in the show notes. If you're listening while multitasking, then it's easy to find the link later on. Just Google Economist Podcasts. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. She produced this episode with Stevie Hertz, Alicia Burrell, and Jie Hao Chen. Sound design is by Ting Li Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Our thanks to Clean Cuts, who helped us record this episode. Oh,